Pushkin. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A., member FDIC. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 2024 Santa Fe, available early 2024. Since debuting in the late 60s, Yusuf Cat Stevens has made a sizable contribution to the folk canon with tender, contemplative songs like Wild World, Moonshadow, and The Wind. I listen to the wind, to the wind of my soul. Where I'll end up, well, I think only God really knows. Yusuf Cat Stevens' journey as a seeker and a musician is closely tied to his near-death experience fighting tuberculosis as a young man in 1969. After spending a year recovering, Stevens began to write songs at a staggering rate. By the mid-70s, he had released eight studio albums and become one of the defining singer-songwriters of the decade. Teaser and the Firecat, one of those classic 70s albums, was recently reissued to celebrate its 50th anniversary. The new edition features remastered versions of the original album, along with 41 previously unreleased demos and alternate mixes. On today's episode, Bruce Hedlund talks to Youssef about what it was like to perform his old songs after he converted to Islam in the late 70s. They also talk in detail about how Stevens wrote and recorded Teaser and the Firecat. And they talk about how he came to love some of the rough versions of his songs that appeared on the soundtrack for the movie Harold and Maude, which was also just recently re-released for its own 50th anniversary. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Hedlum with Yusuf Cat Stevens. I want to talk about everything in the this whole new package for Teaser in the Firecat. It's got demos and nice little remembrances from Rick Wakeman and Carly Simon. But before that, I just would like to know, what was your life like? You'd had a couple albums, but then you had your big album, Tea for the Tillerman. And I'm not sure if Harold and Maude was out yet by the time this you were writing this album. But what was the sort of the state of your life before going in to do Teaser in the Firecat? First of all, I was re-emerging, if you like, finding my new identity because I'd, I'd gone through a, a very initial spell of pop stardom, you may say, and, and I was writing very different kind of songs, really. I mean, those, those early songs which were released on Decca were very poppy and they always had an arrangement, you know, so it wasn't me playing the guitar. It was always session men, you know, <laughs> being paid to do this. And I had a producer who was just infatuated with Pet Sounds, but he could never recreate Pet Sounds with my music. <laughs> so it was kind of a little bit, I was feeling a little bit odd, not really being myself, not able to be myself. So now time progresses and um, really I find myself after, after having contracted tuberculosis and going into hospital and suddenly, you know, I looked at life completely differently. I said, this time I'm going to, I'm going to try and take charge, at least of my music. And so then 
I started writing, and that's where a plethora of songs just came, flooded out of me. They more or less formed the basic song list of, of my next three albums, you know, which included Monobone Jacken and Tea for the Tillerman and, of course, Tease and the Firecat. Although, yeah, there were other songs which I, I had yet to write, you know, and yet to find, like Morning is Broken, for instance. You know, that wasn't mine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was in this state where I'd come back and I was really, really happy that I found a label, which is Island Records, that allowed me to just be myself and producer and a bunch of musicians that really just supported me and let me just be myself. And that was great. It was a miracle you know, com compared to what I sounded like before that. This was totally different. And so some people, I suppose, in UK, because that's where I, my, I sort of my first career really began, and Europe, they sort of went, you know, is this true? You know, is it really the same guy? <laughs> so I'd, I'd made quite a change in my life. And then that became my modus operandi. You know, I was continuously walking through thresholds and trying to reach a new height, you know, or somewhere better than uh, where I was. So te Teaser came off the back of, if you like, T for the Tillerman. Now that was kind of pretty much a milestone record, although I didn't really realize it at the time, but in the retrospect, you can see it now. But, you know, a lot of people were saying, well, is he going to be able to do something as good, you know? And so this was uh, me sort of riding a wave uh, and, and inspired, and uh, I think fulfilling or you know, ticking all the boxes that anybody, um, you know, put in front of me. Were you feeling pressure after T for the Tellerman to come up with something as successful? No, I was, it was kind of easy. It was something I was doing anyway, you know, so I, I don't think I had to try. It was just uh, people were absorbing my music as fast as I could make it. You know, I was having a great reception with my music. You mentioned in the uh, introduction to the booklet that's included with this new edition that there were a lot of people around, James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, Elton John. I think you mentioned Carol King. And you said there was competition, at least sort of listening through the walls at the recording studio. I don't know if you meant that literally or figuratively. Were you listening to those people and thinking, huh, I've got to pick it up. I've got to do something different. No, no, no. When we talk about competition, it was like only after you when you've made the record, you know, so you're seeing how well your record company do with your music. It wasn't really that, oh, I've got to write a better song than Elton John. It wasn't that, anything like that. It was just seeing whether or not people were hearing you. And uh, that was the competition, you know. So yeah, the charts, you know, it's like a, a track race, you know, you're trying to get to the top, but it's, it's not that you want to necessarily downbeat the person in front of you. You know, you just want your record companies to make sure that everybody gets gets to see you win. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> what did Island Records see that Decca didn't see when you started with Island Records? Well, it was really a very introspective new approach to, to lyric writing. I, I, I was writing my autobiography, if you like, through my music and, you know, my lyrics. It was whatever I was learning, whatever I was reading, you know, I was into metaphysical books and, and trying to find out, you know, the, the I behind me mm -hmm. or within me, Buddhist books, you know, I, I was reaching out, Zen. And so therefore, anything that I was discovering, I kind of like wrote about it very quickly. So if you listen to The Wind, you know, there you have a perfect example of my um, state of mind, you know, waiting for the inspiration, which is the wind, you know, so it's, it's a symbol of the wind. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it, it's interesting that that word is very close to, um, to, to the wind. Inspiration is like a wind. Did you know that's what you were feeling at the time or did it just sort of come out of you? And then once you wrote the song, you said, oh, this, this must be what I'm feeling. This must be what I'm thinking. Well, I knew what I was thinking. I was, I was trying to lay it down. That was, that was what I was doing. And I think I did pretty well, you know, and a lot of people really connected. I mean, I wrote most of these songs in a little bedsit, you know, where my father gave me this little flat above the cafe, my dad's cafe in London. And it was just a one, one little bedsit. And that was really the epitome of, of the kind of the audience that I had, because they were all in bedsits and listening to me too. And um, <laughs> it was a kind of a, this community of, you know, introspective people looking at the world and looking at what the challenges are out there and there's a whole lot of competition going on but actually 
I, when I talked about competition, I didn't mean that that's why I wrote songs. I mean, God, no. It was just that that was just the business side of it. As I said, it was really my internal journey that I was really concentrating on. Mm -hmm. And that, that connected very, very deeply. Was The Wind the first song you wrote for this album? I know you wrote a lot of songs when you were recovering, but because it's, it's such an interesting song to begin an album with, Teaser is a much rockier, harder-edged album than T for the Tillerman, at least I think, some of the songs. And you start on a very kind of pensive note. Did that song come to you first, or did you just feel it introduced the album best? I think it represented who I was better than any other, because the other songs were a little bit more arranged, you know, there was more sounds, more drums, more everything. This was really scaled down me, you know, mm -hmm. peeled down to the core. Uh, and that's why we loved it. And that's, and, and that's why I think people also appreciate when they listen to the album, this is the, the beginning, this is the beginning of this journey. And uh, it's funny because it's not even me playing guitar at the beginning, that's actually Alan. He plays this lovely little arpeggio thing. Mm -hmm. And then I come in. But the words of that song are so, so profound, you know, I think um, uh, I just keep reflecting on them and they, they mean so much when I talk about I'll never make the same mistake. Well, that's our problem, you know, as human beings, we're always making mistakes. And But that's the other characteristic of human beings uh, is that we try to develop and get over them and do something better. And, you know, so that, it's, it's great. It's got so many um, aspects to that song. It also introduces this theme to the record, which is in some of the sort of rockier songs as well, of putting the past behind. Changes for particularly uh, Tuesday's Dead. It runs throughout this album, this feeling that you've got to put the past behind you. Is that something you felt strongly at the time about your career or your life? Yeah, I mean, I, w I was looking back at Decca, you know, the old Decca days, and that was more like looking looking back at Dickens, you know, the times of Dickens. Um, <laughs> that's what it felt like to me. <laughs> but the past, I mean, when you look at a, a song like Changes, I knew there were a few other songs called Changes, so that's, that's why I called it Changes 4. I didn't know if there were three before that, whether there were 20, I don't know. But I call it Changes 4, just to distinguish this one, this one from, well, David Bowie had one too. Mm -hmm. So therefore, Changes, you know, uh, we were really, ha we had high expectations and we were definitely in the political, you know, mood. The generation, our generation, was trying to really change things around everything and to leave the past and go forward. But, you know, political barricades were not easy to, to overcome. This album also has a strong gospel feel. It has Morning is Broken, which is a, a hymn, not gospel particularly. Growing up, was what were your influences when you were first starting to play the piano and the, and the guitar? Oh, well, I, I had all kinds of influences because I, I lived in the center of London. And so you can imagine, you know, I had a theater cross the road on my doorstep. I went to school in Drury Lane, you know. I mean, there were all the cinemas, all the clubs, Tin Pan Alley. My best friend, actually, his father had a restaurant too, and he was just on Tin Palace. That was about 400 yards away. You know, so it was all where, where I lived. Soho was just a little bit further. Piccadilly was the other end of my road. So because of that, I picked up all the genres that there were, you know, buzzing around. Mm -hmm. The West Side Story was, was it. You know, that, that really broke all, all the barriers for me as far as, as, as I could see as in music. It had everything. And then came the Beatles, you know, and wow. And they were getting sourced, or their inspiration was also coming from this, you know, from the stateside. Black artists, you know, or little, little singles were coming across the water and they were listening to them and you were getting, you know, Muddy Waters and, and John Lee Hook and all these people. So all that stuff, I was soaking it all up. When you were writing these songs, how did they come? Was it you and a guitar just finding a key and... Yeah, it was mostly like that. I mean, I had a new guitar. I mean, every new guitar has its own, you know, song within it. And mm. that's another thing. But uh, there was a favorite guitar of mine, which was Black Everly Brothers, you know, Gibson. And uh, I wrote most of my songs on there. But then, of course, I had a little Italian organ, which sounded really crappy, you know, but it gave me so many ideas. I just pressed a button. There was another one. And, uh, of course, when the ARP synthesizer came out, wow, I, that was another whole, you know, kaleidoscope sound for me to play with. But really, I, I kind of 
jumped from guitar, sometimes to the piano. I had a piano upstairs in the house uh, and, you know, my little um, organ. And, and that was it, you know, my little tape recorder. And I was off, you know. There was no, no obstacle to me writing at all. You're a very muscular guitar player and very rhythmic. Unlike a lot of folk music of the day, you've got a, a really strong beat in what you do. And the same thing on piano. Like when I think of Miles from Nowhere, I hadn't realized you'd played that piano part. It's a really great bluesy part. Who are the players that influenced you? Because you've got such a aggressive, rhythmic sound on both instruments. I don't really know. I mean, that was, you know, I, I, I suppose Ray Charles, you know, if you listen, his voice, I mean, to be honest, that's, that's the voice for the blues. I mean, incredible. So, um, I, so I was influenced by him. I was also influenced by um, Nina Simone, but I couldn't play piano like her. You know, but she did play wild piano, though, sometimes. You listen to, you know, uh, Mississippi, goddamn, you know, bang. You know, she does it as well. So... In those kinds of songs. And then, of course, you've got Sad Lisa. You can, you can go to my classical side and you can see I'm sort of very soft, very gentle, on, you know, on the piano as well. So I, I took on different moods, but I, 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 with a rock song, of course, you've got to bang it out. That's, that's the way I feel. And were there any guitarists that influenced you particularly? Guitarists? Oh, I suppose, looking back at the time, Peter Green, you know, oh, well, I mean, that song. I think you can hear a little bit of Lady Darbonville in the way that I play that, um, you know, that little lick on the guitar. I'm pretty sure it was influenced by Peter Green. When it came to the groups, I mean, I thought Keith Richards was a terrific guitar player. His riffs, you know, he loved a riff, you know. You go back to kind of Howling Wolf for that kind of thing. Down, 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 down. Were you the kind of kid who sat there with the radio and figured out riffs as, as you heard them? No, in fact, that was one of the real, I would say, motivations for me to write songs. I could not work out the chords, and it was just too tedious to even bother to, you know, oh, oh, he's changing, oh, too quick, oh, what's that word? Oh, no, can't even hear it. You know, so I'd write my own songs. I forget about learning anybody else's. <laughs> We're taking a quick break here, but we'll be right back with more from Bruce Hedlum's conversation with Yusuf Cat-Stevens. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. We're back with more from Yusuf Cat Stevens. So you sat down to record this album, and I want you to talk about two people who you'd worked with before. Paul Samuel Smith, first of all. Can you just talk a little bit about his influence on you? 
Well, Paul, you know, I'd actually seen him in the clubs, you know, because when, when I was, you know, getting into music, I, w- I was going to the clubs and he was in the Yardbirds. So I saw him at the 100 Club, which was just down the road from where I lived. And I used to dance to his music, you know, and there was other groups there. The Animals used to come down, Manfred Mann, an awful lot. The Who dropped into the market. I mean, it's all that going on. But he was the bass player. I didn't really notice him, to be honest. At that time, it just, you know, you felt it. You felt the bass, didn't really know what he was doing. But then, of course, when Chris Blackwell of, of Island Records sort of discovered me, he kind of brought Paul on board. And I, and I listened to a, an album he'd made with Renaissance. It's a kind of British sort of progressive folk group. And, um, wow, I loved it. It was so clean and English. You know, I loved the ambience which he created with that. It's like, you know, sometimes if you hear... Um, the timbre of a guitar. It's wood. And that's what he tried to capture. He tried to capture the nature of the wood of the guitar that I was playing. And, and that was extraordinary. And the other person you, you started working with was uh, Alan Davies. Yeah, so Alan, I mean, Alan was brought on board kind of like a, as a replacement for someone who Paul actually wanted, which was John Mark. But he was busy. So then he, he recommended um, Alan come along. Alan was kind of thinking, oh, well, hang on. You know, this is like Cat Stevens. He was sort of this black velvet suit guy and what's it going to be and then of course he listened to the new songs and he, wow he's blown away mm-hmm. uh, and then he became my perfect you know companion all those little intricate gaps that he used to fill and and you know um, and enhance it was just incredible how it worked and so we, we've been together ever since ever since those early days in the olympic where we first started recording mona bone jacken what was it that made you guys so compatible well, he was blonde and I was dark hair. I mean, that's basically it. You know, we just <laughs> went together. It was a great combination. Yin and yang, sun and moon. Yeah. But you would do all the chords and the strumming and he would do the patterns? Uh, yes. And when it came to something like Wild World and, you know, you've got a few licks, which I'm doing, <laughs> which um, which he wasn't. He was doing more strumming, actually, on uh, on Wild World. So we kind of changed around here and there. But, you know, if you listen to Father and Son, you can hear that beautiful response to my first guitar chords you know down da 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 and he goes da 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 beautiful would you just sit and play together to work out those things is that something you did in studio or while you were writing oh no that was always done in the studio i'd come kind of with a ready-made well not all the time they weren't all finished like for instance the first recording of wild world i kind of i had Oh, darling, darling, it's the wild world. Well, no, that didn't work. You know, so uh, <laughs> next day I changed it to Oh, baby, baby. But usually the songs were formed. You know, they'd, they've got their character. And I was trying to teach them some of these. Occasionally I'd do something on the timing that would be slightly different. And that, that was the thing which stumped them. And so we'd have to stop and start again until we got that right. But usually it would be in the studio that we worked this out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the songs on the album is uh, is in seven eight. I think you you have unusual time signatures sometimes. Yeah, that was my the Greek in me, you know. So my father was from Cyprus, so um, they often do this. They do an eleven one too, you know, eleven eight um, time signature too. And sometimes they swap it around. Well, actually, Alan didn't play on that one. To be honest, <laughs> it was a, it was a, a, you know Andreas Tumazi, you know, a friend I met, a bazooki player. Who, of course, you know, did that so naturally, you know, like in his in his sleep. Did you listen to Greek music growing up? Well, yeah, because we went to weddings, and that's the only music they had, you know, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, my brother, also my half brother, my father's first marriage, um, his name was George, and he was a bouzouki player, and and he actually played violin. So I used to go and see him play at the weddings. But you never played yourself, the bouzouki. No, it was very difficult to hold because it's kind of like a bowl. Um, and, you, you know, balancing that thing is not easy. So guitar is much better, much easier. Mm-hmm. When I was talking about your uh, guitar playing, and you mentioned you had the Everly Brothers Gibson, uh, it makes me think your guitar playing is a little like the Everly Brothers. Yeah, I, you could say that. I mean, also, um, you, you know, Eddie Cochran, you know, if you know, you know, I love that kind of thing, the riffs. Um, we're using full chords, you know what I mean? Like you listen to, um, I wasn't electric, but you know, it's the same kind of thing that the Kinks did. Dun, 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 dun. I love all that, all those kind of uh, chordy riffs. Mm-hmm. Did you see the Kinks as well live? You saw so many great bands live. 
Yeah, Kinks as well. Yeah, for sure. They were they were doing the circuits as well. I have to ask you what it was like to see the Kinks back then. Well, they they were very odd, you know, and um, but they were more kind of R and B in the beginning. You could hear that for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, they were listening to all the songs that were coming over, you know, from stateside and 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 the sort of Motown influence as well. You could hear that. Uh, Fortune Teller, I reckon was was an inspiration for uh, you really got me too you know so all all those kind of songs influenced them and um, mm-hmm. they interpreted it their way sort of their british way you know british sound i want to talk to you about a couple specific songs on the album it's one of these albums i grew up with so i know it so well there's uh, much more than tnt for the tillerman there's a couple of very direct love songs uh, if i laugh how can i tell you they were much more kind of sort of yearning and much more direct than other stuff you've done. Tell me about those songs. Well, you've got to find someone, you know, you can, you can love. <laughs> that's, that's, the whole, that's the whole joy of, you know, and the search is the thing. You know, when you find someone, they never usually turn out exactly the way you expect it. So there's always that kind of disappointment because the perfect person isn't there. You know, it's, it's kind of what we project from or what we expect from others and so the how can i tell you was really a song about an invisible girl you know someone who well no i was going out with someone at the time but i used that as a kind of a, a, a sort of jumping board if you like to um to then write this song about another girl which wasn't her i suppose <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. was the other girl a real girl or just an imaginary girl that would always be imaginary always imaginary yeah, that, that's the, um, the thing. No limits to my imagination. <laughs> uh, tell me the story about the song Moonshadow. Well, Moonshadow is, of course, very special to me because, well, I was a city lad and, and therefore I was used to looking at the moon from the street with lamp lights, you know, with um, street lights. And so therefore I never, ever saw my shadow until I took a holiday in Spain. This was just before I was making uh, the record. And uh, lo and behold, I looked down and there I am. You know, it's me. It's my shadow. Couldn't believe it. And I had a few melodies, you may say. And uh, I developed this one particular song to suit the moment. And it, it was perfect. It was just perfect. It was all in D. And therefore, the moon shadow was born. I think that's a funny story because for me, T for the Tillerman is such a pastoral album. It seems like an album of someone who lives in the country seems very about nature and boats. And then when you said, well, you were a city kid. I mean, I think most people would think you were some kid from the country because, because of that pastoral feel of some of your music. Yeah, well, that was the imagination at work, you know. So, so yeah, we had patches of green, you know, which we would go to. They're called parks in London. And you take a bus and, you know, you have to go quite a way to get there and get off. And you're in the park. But there was always this, you know, dream of, of the land of, of green. And so, therefore, I wrote Where Do the Children Play, for instance, based on the fact that, you know, where I lived was all cement. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that impacted me. Yeah, so it was, it was more like uh, the ideal within my mind, within my sort of creative songwriting mind that, that helped me um, see all these things and paint them with my music and with my words. It's like England, this green and pleasant land. I don't know if I know you went to Catholic school. You may not have listened to Jerusalem when you that hymn when you were at school. I'm not sure if it's a Catholic or, or a Protestant song now. And now you're confusing me. I, I, I'm not sure where that lies. But yes, you're right. I mean, by the way, William Blake, he was born in Soho. If you, there was, you know, round the corner from the clubs where I used to go. No, oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, William Blake. He wrote the words, of course, of that song. So he's another city boy who just wrote about the country. Yeah, well, look at what he wrote, too. You know, talk about the satanic mills. He was talking about the new industrial revolution, Mm -hmm. which was on the doorstep, and which I wrote about later when I wrote uh, Matthew and Son, for instance. Uh, Were you influenced by Blake when you were young as well? Oh, I like Blake, but I think I was more influenced by, um, well, I loved, let's say, um, Van Gogh. He was my favorite artist. Apart from the cartoons, because I, I did actually spend more time looking at cartoons than I did in the National Gallery or, or anything. But yeah, cartoons was a much quicker way of expressing yourself and, you know, having, having a few laughs as well, because I, I used to like cartoons. Did you start drawing around the same time you started playing music? 
No, no, no. I, I began with the pen, and that was actually going to be my few. I really felt I was going to be an artist or a cartoonist or whatever. You know, that was my ambition. And then along came all this music. You know, the Beatles changed everything. Mm -hmm. And then I realized a lot of artists actually didn't die very rich. And <laughs> well, the only, you know, the painting started selling for millions or whatever it was when they died. I thought, well, that's no good because here's the Beatles earning money right now. <laughs> you, know, and, <laughs> you know, so it was a, it was a clear road to, to where I wanted to go at that time. Uh, and tell me about the song Morning Has Broken. Morning Has Broken uh, is a beautiful hymn which I just happened to fall upon. I was looking for inspiration and I was in a bookshop and I ended up in the religious department and I fiddled around there and I found this hymn book, you know, and I, mm, there we go, got some nice, interesting words, took it back and uh, I couldn't really read music, but I, I slowly, I, I deciphered, you know, dun, 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 dun. I went, wow, this is great, you know, and then I booked my own chords to it because they didn't have the chords in, there was just a top line. And then, uh, and that, that, that became, you know, part of my, um, my canon, mm -hmm. which people think, well, I wrote it. Of course, I didn't. I just arranged it. And I, of course, uh, Rick Wakeman happened to be in the Morgan Studios where we were recording Teaser. And he dropped in and we asked him to just, you know, instead of it being just only acoustic, I wanted something really flowery and magnificent, you know, and, and he did it. He did it so beautifully. We couldn't put his name on the album because it was like, uh, it was taboo in those days to do that. Oh, because he was on another label. He was on Warner Brothers, The Enemy, The Enemy. You say you're not competitive, but boy, he didn't like Warner Brothers. They didn't offer me enough money, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, shame on them. Did you work out the arrangement with him? Because it's got a beautiful little, and I don't know if it's in the original, but it's got a beautiful little modulation, that song. It starts in D, and you go through the introduction, and then you end up in C. You go back to D for, I think, one of the, one of the verses, or maybe a chorus. But it's quite sophisticated the way it, go it moves back and forth between the keys. Was that something you worked out yourself? Did you work that out with him? Yeah, I kind of told him I, I want to change key here. And uh, because I didn't want it to go like monotonously through four kind of verses or four choruses or whatever to the end. I wanted something to change so that, that therefore the third one kind of moved up. And he was able to do that uh, on my guitar I had more difficult time to do things a little bit higher. So he managed to, of course, he was a uh, wizard on that. It's become a sort of modern hymn. Were you trying to get that kind of hymn feeling for it? Uh, I didn't think, I didn't even think of it as a hymn. I just thought of it as a great song. And, and the words were so universal. They were not tied to any dogma or any you know, particular denomination. And so therefore it was free. It was just beautiful. And um, I loved it. Uh, but but it was spiritual, uh, and and that's what I wanted. I wanted that spiritual side. Mm -hmm. I, I actually pronounced the words wrong in there because I didn't know that it should have been God's recreation of the new day. Instead, I sang God's recreation, <laughs> and I got yeah. some complaints from those old grannies. You know, it's like, you can't say that. It's uh, anyway, <laughs> my fault. No, you're you're okay because everybody just says ah, the English. They say everything. Different. Yeah, right. You're you're okay. I'm just wondering because it came in 71, which is just after uh, Let It Be, the song Bridge Over Troubled Water. Suddenly, there was a lot of gospel feel, a lot of hymns in the top 40. Mm, I never thought about that until now when you said it. And um, yeah, you're right. Uh, it sort of fitted into a, a, a kind of inspirational moment of spirituality, I suppose, at that point. Yeah. What was the state of your own spiritual journey at this point? It was very jagged and uh, nothing really quite... I mean, if I liked something, it wouldn't quite go to the end because there'd be something I'd find as a problem which I couldn't rationalize or I couldn't absorb. And so therefore, I, I went to the next thing. I was looking for... You know, you make your own... At that point, I made my own religion up and it was basically music you know it was just me writing best songs trying not to hurt anybody and i suppose inspired by christ as well because i mean i had seven years at catholic school i mean that really has to imprint 
you know, something on you. But then the, the church was, was something completely different from what my, I imagined Christ to be. So you know, I was wandering, you know, through the woods uh, of religiosity or spiritualism and um, not finding yet my home. Were you a good Catholic, Roman Catholic student? No. Absolutely not. In fact, I wasn't even Catholic. They stuck me in that school because it was the best school around, but I was Greek Orthodox. So I couldn't, mm -hmm. I couldn't even do things. You know, I was always wondering, what's that little white thing that they put on their tongue? I always wanted to taste one of those things, but I couldn't because I was Greek Orthodox. We'll be right back after a quick break with more from Yusuf Katz-Stevens. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. We're back with the rest of Bruce Hedlum's conversation with Yusuf Katz-Stevens. I mean, lots of songs on this album have lasted, but Peace Train, you're very well known for. Tell me about the writing of Peace Train. Well, Peace Train was a riff. It was kind of, it's got a bit of a Greek feel to it. If you listen to it, the, 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 you get strains of this Greek influence in my music if you listen to road to find out you'll actually hear it in the voices uh, bit there that i do mm -hmm. and peace train was the same thing it was like this two thing it was like a first and a third you know and you can hear that on lady dubonville too i'm, I'm doing kind of like the same thing and and uh i really do remember being on a train going up north to manchester or wherever or on a tour you know when i was just launching um, mona bone jack and and I'm pretty sure that that's where I got the kind of the feel for this. I probably pulled my guitar out and, and did it there and then, and, and then went, ooh, this is good. And then it, I never forgot it. You know, then I just finished it. Uh, but however, it was one of the hardest songs to chase in the studio. And so therefore, I'd already written it by the time I recorded T for the Tillerman. And we recorded Peace Train for T for the Tillerman, but it just never made it because I was not satisfied with the energy because I was singing it live and it was making the audience just explode. And, uh, but I never achieved that in the studio. So therefore we had to add drums and the right bass fit. And I never got it until finally when Teaser came around, we did it and we finally got that bass part in Island Records in Paula Bella Road. That's where we did it. And it was the bass that made that song? 
Yeah, the bass uh, riff is really, really crucial. It had, it was a pick, you know, and and the drums as well. Now I've got to say that the drums were so tasteful because they weren't there all the time, and they just highlighted the rhythm of the guitars. And so, and so I think that that's what made it. After you converted to Islam, which was I think seventy seven, you stopped playing some of your old songs for a time. Do you remember, what was it like to come back and start playing these songs from, from Teaser and the Firecat again? It's like it's yours, and you can make it, you can update it the way you want, you can sing it the way you feel. But actually, it still stood the test of time. I mean, most of those words are still so relative to our times and, and circumstances today. Change, you know, come on, we, we do need change. Every time a political, uh, uh, you know, election comes along, we are dying to see this change. And then it falls back into the same old kind of groove. But anyway, you know, so then talk about the, the other songs, like Peace Train, still hasn't arrived. Maybe it hasn't even left the station, I don't know. But in fact, I call one of my tours when I first came back again, I called it Peace Train Late Again, you know. Yeah. That was, <laughs> And I had a little station, you know, where the train, of course, never arrived. Mm -hmm. It's such a personal album, though, uh, about you questioning things. What was it like to come back to that? Do you put yourself in the mindset that you were back then? Or do the years allow you to sing it in a different way or think about them in a different way? Well, because they're poetical, they don't really, they're not grounded you know, you can't say it's exactly, it means exactly this political point in time. It doesn't. It's generic, but profound. And so therefore it lasts and you can interpret it in so many different ways that, you know, the way that you want to. Things like Tuesday's dead, it's still a bit of a puzzle. I'm thinking, why did I say Tuesday is dead? You know, I don't know, because Monday's a bore. I don't know. <laughs> so, so there are still puzzles within those songs to work out. Are there some songs from this album that you just sing in a different way, in a different spirit now? Uh, if you listen to the, uh, the new box set, you'll hear me doing Bitter Blue in a totally different tone. I got very excited about singing that song again, but I, I couldn't do it with the same gusto, you know, that I did before. And this, so it's much darker. Why is that? Because the first, the first version is a pretty, it's a very kind of rocking song, but it's a slightly desperate song. How did you rethink it? Well, I was a little bit inspired when I heard Green Day. And I heard Green Day uh, sing a song called uh, Know the Enemy. And I thought, hang on, that sounds an awful lot like Bitter Blue. And I thought, hmm, I can do the same. <laughs> and I, thought, well, I started developing a new approach to the song. And it was a bit darker, slower, of course. Uh, I wasn't yeah. Green Day. But, um, but, you know, I thought, well, this is great. It's flexible. It's flexible. And that, that's the thing about my songs, actually. A lot of them, if you, if you try them in, in various ways, they work. They still work. So when you heard the Green Day song, you either picked up a guitar or picked up a phone and called your lawyer to see if... Uh... No, I thought, let them, no, let, kidding, let them off this one. Let them off this one. <laughs> you didn't let off Coldplay, I know, but uh, let them off this yeah, one. Yeah, Coldplay. Well, no, hang on. Coldplay, I let off as well. There was too many people claiming that they wrote that, uh, that song. So, but, but I was definitely there first, I would say. Uh, I think so. Uh, with Foreigner Suite. But anyway, certain people I did nab. I can't remember who they were now. Oh, I think it was Flaming Lips. That was it. One of them. Well, good for you. Yeah, they, they recorded uh, uh, you know, a song called Fight Test. And it really sounded like Father and Son. Yeah, so mm -hmm. we couldn't let it go. Are you still writing? Yeah, well, I wrote a song maybe about two weeks ago, you know, and I recorded it in my studio. I'm the only one who's basically, well, my family have heard it. But yeah, yeah, I'm still writing. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Is it still the same way the inspiration hits you or is it just you noodling with a guitar and something emerges? Mm, well, this one is piano, actually. So um, whenever I pick up a guitar, it always develops into some kind of new riff or new song or new chord. I can't just play old stuff. Although when I go touring, of course, I know that people want to hear that song. So I, I do that. But um, when it comes to writing, I mean, I have a whole album of, uh, of, of songs now ready to, to be released. But because of the T for the Tillerman 50th, I kind of, we delayed it. So we've got another record coming out next year. Okay, so people who are listening to this and have such fond memories of Teaser and the Firecat, I'm one of them, tell me how the new music relates to this or does it relate to it? 
I think it relates to the spirit, to the to the soul, you know. Because I think another word for my music is actually soul music. It's not. Just, I mean, I don't think soul just is can be restricted to something with with rhythm or, or you know or, or to the black community. It's it's, it's soul is soul, and uh, and the moment you express yourself deeply, you know that that's when it hits, and that's when people get it. Uh, so I think it's it's still hitting those kind of those those areas of um, emotion and spirituality and consciousness. Yeah, I still see that. Well, I should ask about Harold and Maude because the original Harold and Maude, uh, it was not a great experience for you. Is that right? You didn't like the versions that Hal Ashby used in his film? Um, no, I loved most of it, but it was just that these two new songs, which I'd sort of recorded very roughly in Wally Hyde or just down the road in um, uh, San Francisco when he was doing the filming there, I mean, they were never meant to go in the film like that. I was always meant to do it properly, you know, with musicians or whatever beside <laughs> me. But it, it, was, it was me doing all the little bits and pieces. But it ended up that he stuck that in the, in the film. And now it's, it's there like, you know, it's history. But actually, I love it now because it is so rough. It's so raw. And it was so fresh and spontaneous. You used to talk so much about music being wedded to visuals. Uh, you did your own illustrations on Tifa the Tillerman and on Teaser and the Firecat. The new record has has a sort of full book of Teaser and the Firecat with the entire story, which has to do with the moon, of course. What was it like seeing your music so tightly associated with this very particular story with Harold and Maude? Well, it's always difficult in a way because, you know, you, your vision of the song can never be repeated. and It's in your head, it's, it's in your mind. But the genre that he created with that film and, and, and this, the message of the film just corresponded perfectly with my music. I mean, trouble, you know, at that moment when Maud is being carted into the hospital, she's taken, she's taken an overdose. I mean, you couldn't get anything more perfect. So he just did it. He just... He just I mean, he was high most of the time. Maybe that's how he found the little key to <laughs> open the door. <laughs> to my, I, I, I wasn't high when I, when, I, when I puffed occasionally. I couldn't write anything. It was just, well, if I did, it would never sound very good afterwards, that's all. You were a, a pretty clean living guy even before your conversion. Well, that's because I learned my lesson in my, the early career where I got TB and I said, now, hold on, I want to hold on to my body a little bit longer. You know, I don't want to drop off this planet so early. Now, I've, I've watched some old interviews with you. You were still smoking like a chimney back in the 70s. Yeah, I was. That's true. And uh, I finally um, gave that up, actually, when I became a Muslim. It wasn't as if it was forbidden. But uh, I'll tell you, the, the story was that I was actually in a cinema and I was puffing away. And, and then this woman next to me, she pulls the most horrible face and looking at me like I'm filth. I'll go, my God, if, if my smoking, you know, affects others that, to that degree, I'm going to give it up. And actually I did. I, w I, was, I was getting used to cutting down anyway, but that was the last straw. I said, no, that's it. I don't need this stuff anymore. You see, that's very English. And if someone gave a bad look at an American smoking, they'd, they'd light the whole pack. <laughs> this was, I, I'm not sure if Tea or, or Teaser is your best-selling album, because you continue to experiment through the 70s. You did some really early stuff with synthesizers. You did full bands on some of your, like, f a full R&B treatment. You did some great, great albums, and you continue to do great music. What was it about these albums, you think, that just captured people so strongly i think it was the soul which was you know kind of shining and and i think it was like a very ins inspired and you know when you hear inspired music you just can't do anything but listen to it and and, and become enraptured by it and, and that's what happened and i was just as much um enraptured by my music as anyone else so i was the one i was the first one who was hearing it and i was going this is great i just hope other people like this and it got to be that you know that that's a it's a miracle in a way that um these things happen and so i'm always happy and, and appreciative that uh, that you know i actually got through my music made it through to people's hearts and it changed a lot of people's lives as well you later wrote the song uh, i never wanted to be a rock star did you like being a rock star at this point was the only thing I knew what to do, actually. So, you know, so I, yeah, well, that meant 
can I change my job in the middle of this thing? I don't think I could. It was like me saying, I, I want to do something else. It was probably a prelude to what was going to happen. Okay, well, thank you so much. It's a fantastic, beautiful production for people who love Teaser and the Firecat. They should get it. Uh, and it was wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. You too. Thanks to Yusuf Cat Stevens for talking about the reissue of his classic album, Teaser and the Firecat. You can check it out on a playlist with all of our favorite Yusuf Cat Stevens songs at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez with engineering help from Nick Chafee. Our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats, I'm Justin Richmond. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A dot com to start a new musical journey today.